Good morning, Horizon Church. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Beth Guckenberger, and it's my joy to be here with you all. Um, I love coming and being a part of this community, and I was driving here thinking to myself, I've told you a lot of stories about my life, but I'm pretty sure this first one, is, it will be new information to you. And that is that um, I, I used to love to play basketball. I was, um, you can laugh, I'm five foot four, but if I... <laughs> Size, uh, ages, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, it was really easy to play at my size. You just had to be fast. By the time I entered into high school, though, as my peers began to grow taller than me, the only way I ever got any playing time was first I had to move out to be point guard, and then I had to learn how to shoot good from the outside. <clears throat> in my junior year of high school, we were in a Christmas basketball tournament. I was playing for King's High School, and we were playing against Mason. And we were in the final championship game, and we were down by two with about five seconds left in the game. And Coach Sam Keel called a timeout, and he's like, Beth, I don't have time to make this sound pretty. Here's the deal. They're not going to expect you to be the one that's scoring. So here's, they're not going to set up against you. So here's what I want to do. As soon as the ball goes into play, I want you to square up from the outside, get us a three-point, and let's go home. And, I mean, when you're five foot four, you literally dream about moments like that in a basketball game. So I'm like, you know, I, I captain. The ball came to me in that game, and I square, squared up to shoot from the outside, and I missed it. And we lost the game, and we all went into the locker room. And I decided to tarry there a bit because I didn't want to walk out of that locker room and see the faces of my friend's parents. Whether I thought they were going to be disappointed at me or look at me with pity, I don't know, I just my little adolescent brain, I just didn't want to face them. So I waited until I thought everybody was gone, and then I walked into the gym where I knew my dad would be waiting for me to take me home, and he was just shooting around with a basketball, and as soon as he saw me, he, he passed the ball to me and pointed onto the floor where I had missed the shot, and he said, take a shot. And I thought that was kind of mean, but I squared up, and I had, of course, no pressure against me, so I made that basket. And he rebounded my ball and bounced past it to me again. He said, shoot it again. And now I definitely thought he was being mean. And I squared up and I shot it and made it again. And he bounced past it to me for the third time. Let's see it. And after about the third time, I started to cry. All the emotions from the game all welling up inside of me. And he came over and put his arms around me. And he said, I just want you to go to bed tonight remembering what it is that you're capable of. And today we're going to have this conversation Oh, of course, it wasn't sin that I missed that shot. But there are moments when we feel like we blow it. And we blow it in public or we blow it for people that are important to us. And we're wondering, like, what does that Heavenly Father want to say to us in what might be one of our worst moments? Whether we blew it intentionally because we sinned or we blew it unintentionally. We're going to talk today about that posture and how does he hold us accountable for the behavior and activities of our worst moments? And what do we do when we feel caught? Do we, do we hide? Do we get defensive? Do we look at others? Do we experience shame? How do we picture Jesus looking at us? That'll be our question today. We're going to be in the book of John chapter 8. We're going to start with, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and early in the morning he came in, again into the temple and all the people came to him. Because at this point, he's drawing some attention to himself. He is changing the way he's doing things. He's, he's talking about the law in a way nobody had heard it before. He was performing signs and wonders like nobody had ever seen. And now whenever he walked about, people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. He was a teacher. He was trying to, to give us a vision for a new kind of kingdom. 
Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman that was caught in adultery. So I just want you to paint the picture in your imagination of him being in this place and people around kind of like, like wanting to hear what it is that he had to say. And then these very religious people came and they drug this woman <clears throat> that they had caught in adultery. And when they set her in the midst... So everyone now would be like turning their attention from whatever Jesus had been telling them about to, to this woman. And I want to say, first of all, if she had been caught in adultery, right off the bat, I'm asking myself, where's the man? Like, why didn't they drug him in front of everybody? I mean, it takes two in order to do that act. And legally speaking, the standard of evidence <clears throat> was very, very high for this crime. It wasn't enough to just catch two people walking out of a room or even catch two people in a bed, you actually had to see the sexual act take place in order for it to be considered against the law. And so under these kinds of conditions, it was almost impossible to prove adultery unless, what if it was a setup? And so just, just like maybe that man was in on it. That's why he didn't get drugged in front of all the people. That's why he knew when someone could come in and catch them. And I just want you to imagine for a minute with any empathy that you have inside, what would it be like to be that woman and it dawning on her that what she had just been doing that she thought had meant something actually hadn't meant anything to anyone. She was actually a pawn in the conflict these religious people had against this teacher who was gathering people around them. How would that have felt in that moment to be her? And how does... Jesus looking at her. Verse 4, these people said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, and you know Moses, the author of the Torah, the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. So, like, what do you say? And that's the question I want you to go home thinking about today. When you leave this building or turn off your screen, that's the question I want you to ask yourself. What does Jesus say? When we get caught in our worst kind of moments, what do you say? How is he looking at us? <clears throat> if I haven't met you yet, for 25 years I've worked for an organization called Back to Back Ministries. And 15 of those years I lived in Monterey, Mexico. And we had a, a man come visit us from Oklahoma City. And he was in the senior staff of a very large church there. I think today they're up to about 30 different locations. And his job description was he was the senior pastor of the senior pastor of the youth pastors. He, he managed the youth ministry for that whole system. And he was coming out to visit us for a few days to see if we were a good place for him to send some of the youth from their church to come and serve. And one night at dinner, we were just having tacos. And I said to him, tell me your story. How, how did you come to know Jesus? What has he taught you? And he just kind of looked at me for a minute, I'm sure trying to figure out if I was trustworthy. And then he said, well, I was in youth ministry for a long time and kind of rose in the ranks of that field. And then I made a choice, a really bad one. And it cost me my marriage and it cost me my job and it cost me the respect of my children. And uh, in the aftermath of that choice, I got accountability and I entered into a season of spiritual healing and emotional healing, but I stopped doing ministry and I began to sell insurance. And for the next couple of years, I just spent time trying to figure out how I got there. And after several years, feeling like the Lord had done a good work in me, I was missing the capital C church. And so I just put together a resume and I wrote my testimony in the cover letter and I stuck that thing on a job board. 
And I was just thinking to myself, maybe somebody somewhere, some church would let me do something. He's like, imagine my surprise when this giant church calls me and asks me to interview for the job I have right now. He's like, it's a system that's big enough that I kind of figured halfway through the process that my cover letter got separated from my resume and nobody really understood what it is that I had been through. And so I finally got through the process and found myself in the office of the senior pastor and he offered me this job and I wanted to just say, yep, I'll take that. But I thought to myself, what if, what if he doesn't really know what happened to me and it wouldn't be fair to him unless he understood. So he said, I just recounted for him the whole thing. And I said, did you get a chance to read the cover letter? Do you understand the, the journey that I've been on? And that senior pastor said, I have found that everybody has a broken season. And I like to hire people on the other side of their broken season because I find it makes them a better minister of the gospel of grace. And I said to him, hey, that's why your church is so full on Sunday mornings. Because that's exactly the kind of person someone wants to spend a Sunday with. Somebody that understands that we are more than the sum of our worst choices. Jesus looked at this woman and he saw her. He saw her past. And more importantly, he also saw her future. And today in our culture, what can drive me crazy is how quick we are to give up and cancel people and throw things away. I mean, we have to ask ourselves, what does grace look like? Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 will say this, if someone is caught in sin, you who live in the Spirit, you should restore that person gently. We don't do that very well these days in the church. We distance ourselves we judge. We have long memories. We throw things away that have spent a long time building. What does it look like for us to restore someone gently? We're going to see an example of that in the rest of this passage. I know you all have been studying this hour, Second Kings here, and I just want to make a note of the fact that this compassionate nature that Jesus is putting on display, he's been doing since Genesis. He does it all the way up through 2 Kings, and he'll do it through the end of Revelation. It says in 2 Kings 13, but the Lord was gracious to them. He had compassion on them. He regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence. This is the nature of this God that we are gathered here today to worship and learn about. And so here, here we are standing in front, all these people watching. Okay, teacher, what do you say? If he said, like, let her go, it would seem like he was breaking the law of Moses and relaxing public morals. If he said, okay, well, go ahead and execute her for the crime of adultery, he would seem harsh and cruel, and he's never been that way. He's always had another kind of way. In Hebrew, we call this way tekim alam. It literally means to heal or repair the world. It means when you find something that's crooked, do everything in your power to straighten it. When you find something that's broken, do everything you have to heal it. Engage in the hard and the dark and bring to bear with you all that you have. When we see crooked paths, what do we do? Like, we got to ask ourselves that, church. What do we do? Do we, do we shake our heads? Do we judge those crooked paths? Or do we say, Lord, pick me, put me in. I want to do everything I can to bring peace into what could be someone's worst moment or chaos. Verse 6, it says, this they said, what, 
what they said was, what do you say, Jesus? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the, on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear them. Of course he heard them. And when you read in your Bible something that Jesus does, it doesn't make any sense. I know Chad has taught you that everything that Jesus did, he told us somewhere in his Bible that he was going to do. Every part of the text, every story, everything has context in the text. In fact, one time Chad and I were in Israel, and I remember raising my hand and asking the guide that we were with, I said, hey, I heard one time that Jesus fulfilled 400 prophecies of the Old Testament. Could you confirm that? And the man kind of looked at me and was like, well, I think we're somewhere probably closer to like 4,000. And maybe he was using hyperbole in that moment, but his point to me was well taken. Everything Jesus did is somewhere in the text. So if he bent down to write in the dust, somewhere in the Bible, there's something about dust writing. Think about that passage where he says that we're supposed to forgive people seven times 70. Well, any of you who are married have done the math. 490 times doesn't take very long, right? We can get through that in the first few months. When Jesus said that we were to forgive seven times 70, he was referencing a story in the book of Genesis where a man named Lamech said to his wives, hear my words, I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, I'm going to be avenged 77. And Jesus was saying, if the sons of man are known for vengeance seven times 70, then my kids are going to be known for forgiveness seven times 70. He was juxtaposing the position, that principle. He was not giving us a math problem in that moment. So what does he, what is he trying to do when he bends down and writes in the dust? Well, we find the answer to that in Jeremiah chapter 17. It says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. And these men knew a little something about shaming. They were actively participating in that practice right that moment. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust as they've forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. And the kind of men that were acting this way, self-righteous, these are the kind of men that would know their Bibles. And Jesus knew that. And I've heard plenty of messages before about how Jesus wrote in the desk because he was trying to draw attention away from the woman. And I'm sure it did draw attention away from the woman. But I think he was counting on the fact that, he, that that audience does not want their name written in the dust as being known for someone who has forsaken the Lord. He's always the teacher, right? And he's trying, he's got a bunch of audiences here that he has messages for. He was teaching the woman, I see you. And he was teaching the accusers, hey, look into your own heart. And he was teaching all the rest of the people that were watching and, the, and those of us who want to read John chapter 8 something. What is it that he's trying to teach us? To some of us, he's telling us to put down our stones, right? To give grace in the same way that we receive it. To some of us, he's saying, like, you are more than the sum of your acts. Your identity is not in what you've done, both good and bad. That's not how that works. Well, this teacher continues in verse 7, they kept demanding an answer. What do you say, Jesus? So he stood up again. And I just want to stop at that for a moment. I want you to picture in your mind's eye this angry mob of men and Jesus standing up to them. He's not afraid to stand up to our accusers, and he's not afraid of a group of angry people. We teach it back to back in our trauma training that anger is a secondary emotion sitting always on the primary emotion of fear. So when you see somebody that's angry, they're actually really afraid. And if you love them, if you care about them, you'll be a detective to figure out what are you afraid of that's creating this anger environment in you. 
we have a choice. When someone comes at us hot, we can get hotter. Right? We can either attack or regress. That doesn't solve anything. What if we tried to figure out what was making them angry? Uh, when Todd and I, my husband and I, moved back from Mexico to the United States, we decided to build a house to fit our unusual family. And one day after dinner, Todd was showing me the house plans, and he said, hey, I'm thinking in this guest bedroom we have right here, we should put a bathroom. And I was like, we do not need another bathroom in this house. Like, if somebody wants to go to the bathroom, they can go up here or down there. There are plenty of bathrooms. He's like, I don't know. I kind of think people will like the privacy in a, in a guest room of their own bathroom. And I don't know how you fight with your significant other. But one minute we were talking about bathrooms, and the next minute I was talking to him about his mother, right? <laughs> But Todd knows this training, and he could see me getting hot. And he said to me, I can't figure out what you're afraid of. I can tell you're angry, but I cannot figure out what you're afraid of. And in that moment, I was not like, well, let's, let's try to figure that out together, right? Like, in the moment, I'm thinking, I would like to win right now. We're in a fight, and I'd like to win. But he was right, and I knew he was right. So I just took a minute to, like, close my eyes, and I said, oh, I think I'm afraid we can't afford it. He's like, really? And so he gets out his spreadsheets and shows me all his numbers. I'm like, oh, perfect. Now that I understand, I'd like a double sink and brush nickel in there, please, right? <laughs> but Jesus saw this angry mob of men, and he, was, he, didn't, he is the ultimate detective. It's us that needs to maybe ask the question, what were those men afraid of? Well, they were afraid of the fact that Jesus was literally changing everything about their system of righteousness. And he wants to teach them. He wants to teach them about a new kind of kingdom. So he says to them, all right, all right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And he stooped down again and he began to write in the dust again. And I just, I think the details matter about the fact that he stood up and looked him in the eye. I want you to know that you have an accuser. The Bible says that Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. He is the liar and he's the father of lies. And we have an accuser and Jesus is not afraid to stand up to him. And sometimes in like art depictions, right, in media, when we see something about good and evil, they look like they're represented by being the same size. You have like a, you know, like a devil and an angel or you see some kind of beautiful piece of art with like cosmic angels and demons wrestling around and something that's supposed to depict spiritual warfare. I just want to be really clear. These are not rivals of the same size. When Jesus stands up to our accusers, they have to back down. They have no authority. In fact, there's a passage, I don't have it in my notes, but it's in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is being arrested, right? The soldiers ask him just to make sure they got the right guy, like, hey, what's your name? And his response is, Yahweh, I am. And as soon as he said Yahweh, those soldiers fell down. Like, that's what it feels like to stand up next to Jesus. So here he comes, standing up next to them. And I... We all, have, we all have accusers. We all have this, this accuser, this liar who wants to tell us things about who we are and who we aren't. And he's trying to perpetuate shame in our lives. And he does not have the right to do that. In 2006, I was asked to write a book about the stories that we were experiencing in Mexico. And I told the publisher, no, thank you. I, don't, I can't do that. Then they came back the next year and asked me again, and I said, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't have time for that. I can't do that. They asked for a third time, and at this point, one of our, Todd's and my mentors had kind of gotten involved in the situation, and he was sitting down with me one day. He's like, why don't you want to write that book? And I said, oh, I don't have time for it. And he said, well, we, we tend to all to kind of do what we, have, what we want to do. Like, you, you probably have time for it. 
And I said, well, I actually don't think I'll be that good at it. He said, well, I'm, I'm sure they have professionals that will help you with that. And I said, um, you know what, all the rest of this staff have the same exact stories. Why do I get to be the one that writes them down? And he said, well, that's because they asked you. And then as he was pressing on me, finally I said, oh, you know what, nobody wants to see that crown up on my head. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I, I mean, I threw my hand over my mouth and I said, I cannot believe I said that. If you go back 15 years before that, when I was a high school senior, this would be 1990, I was a cheerleader for the Kings High School football team. And homecoming weekend, I had been elected to that homecoming court. And so at halftime, I changed out of my cheerleading uniform and put on one of those princess dresses and rode around in the back of the car. And at the end of that little exercise, they called my name. And I don't know if you remember anything about the 1990s, but we had some big hair back then, right? I had a big perm and plenty of hairspray. And when they put that crown in my hair, you could never see it because I had these really big bangs. Is it, you know, can I get a witness? Anybody else have those in 1990? Right? So after that was over, I ran back up to the bathroom to change out of that dress and put my cheerleading uniform on to go back down and cheer the second half. And when I looked one more time at the mirror before I walked out the door, I didn't even see the crown was still up there because, again, it was hidden in my perm and my hairspray. And I went down, hurried down the path to go back down to the sideline, and I ran into this, this fremony. And uh, she looked at me and she said, oh, Beth, take that thing off your head. Nobody wants to see that on you. And now as an adult... I recognize that she had a friend who lost and she had her own adolescent issues going on and what she said had way more to do with her than it ever had to do with me. But somehow in that moment, I encoded some shame. And this is, the, uh, that, that, that girl might have said those words, but my accuser, he offered them. And he put them somewhere where he could nurture them inside of me. And in this moment when I was going to have this opportunity, that's what came out, the fear and the shame of drawing attention to myself. And now 13 books later, I cannot even believe I almost said no to that opportunity that the enemy was trying to take from me because of something that happened all those years ago. We all have stories like that. Moments where we have encoded shame that has caused us to want to shrink back or sit back or worry if we are not enough. And meanwhile, God, Jesus, he wants to stand up to our accuser. And these accusers that Jesus stood up to, it might have seemed in that setting like they had power. But Jesus doesn't just have power. Jesus is power. And he wants to share that power with us. There's a pair of passages in the, in the book of Exodus. That's the, the Moses and Pharaoh let my go part of the book. In the beginning of the book of Exodus, when God's kids were still slaves and God asks Moses to lead them out of slavery by confronting that Egyptian uh, power of Pharaoh, he uses a series of plagues to get Pharaoh's attention. And one of those plagues is found in Exodus chapter 10, and it's called the plague of darkness. And it says in our Bibles that darkness fell so thick upon the land that they could feel it. I bet that woman felt in that moment like darkness was so thick around her, she could feel it. I don't know if you've ever been in a moment where darkness felt so thick you could feel it. Either you were, the darkness looked like temptation or the darkness looked like confusion or the darkness looked like conflict or the darkness looked like, I, mean, I don't know what it looks like for you, but there are moments when darkness overcomes us. But it goes on in that passage to say that everywhere that God's kids went, light was among them. So again, use that little Disney imagination. What does that, 
what did it look like for everything to be so dark you could feel it? But everywhere that God's kids went, they were like little human lightning bugs. They got to carry God's light with them. That's exactly true for us today, church. Doesn't matter how dark, how hard, how lost something feels. If you walk into the story, you carry God's light with you. It will always be with you. Two chapters before that, in Exodus chapter 8, there's a part where Pharaoh says to his magicians, could y'all come up with a plague as cool as the plagues of the God of Moses? Because I'd like our people to understand our power, our God's power, is equal to that of the God of Moses. And those Egyptians come back, those, those magicians come back and pretty much say to Pharaoh, hey, guess what? Like, all of our power combined doesn't compare to the power that's going to be found in the finger of their God. He's doing all of this with simply his finger. So when Jesus stands up to our accusers, they have to go away. Those spiritual whisperers threatening our identity have no authority. So now, then it goes on to say, verse 9, Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest. Here's to hoping that we get wiser as we get older. The oldest people realize, hey, my record's kind of long of having sinned. I'm going to put my stone down. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman was standing in the midst. And now we're back to the beginning of the story. What do you say, Jesus? What do you say? She's alone with him. What do we think Jesus says to us when we're alone with him in the middle after having been caught in our worst activities? Well, I know what, it, well, I know what he's saying to her. He told us all throughout scripture what he's going to say to us in those moments. He's going to say things like, I am faithful and just and I will forgive your sins. He's going to say, I'm not here to condemn the world. Instead, I'm here so that the world might be saved. He says things like, I will have compassion on you and I will strengthen you with power and I will give you rest and I will supply all of your needs and I will not abandon you and nothing you can do can ever separate from me. And there is therefore now no condemnation. These are God's words, his promises to us, his kids. Do we understand them? Do we live like that? Do we have those kinds of rights and privileges encoded in our very soul? Todd and I have this large family, and some of the children that we have added to our family, we have added through adoption. And one of those children we added when he was 12 years old. And when he entered our family at 12, he'd never had a family like ours before. And he came into our house in June before his seventh grade year. And everything about, he was from another country, and everything about the United States was weird to him. Our language, our food, our weather, everything. The one place where everything was right again in his world was the soccer field. He, when he got on the soccer field, it felt like he was at home. So we put him in the seventh grade soccer team over there at King's Junior High. And about a month into school, we did not give him any kind of technology, no kind of like cell phone or anything. He was not ready for that yet. I got a, I got a text from an, a number I didn't recognize when I was at work, and it just said, Tyler forgot his soccer shoes at home. Can you bring him up to school? And I just assumed it was one of his teammates or whatever. So I left work and I went back to the house and I found them. They were in a bag by the back door. He had forgotten them that morning and I grabbed them and I went up to school and it was a game day. So he had like an athletic study hall after school. So I found myself into the study hall and I found him and I like, hey, here's, here's your shoes. You forgot them. And he looked at me and he goes, it worked. And I'm like, what do you mean it worked? And he's like, I told my team I couldn't play in today's game because I forgot my shoes. And one of my teammates is like, don't you have a mom? And he's like, yeah. He's like, well, just ask her. That's, she'll bring them to you. He's like, I didn't know that. This is how this works. And I said, oh, oh yeah, this is definitely how this works, right? 
we bring homework, we bring lunch, we bring, you know, soccer shoes. This is totally, at that point, he had been in my family four months. He had all the rights and privileges as one of my kids, but he didn't understand them. In fact, that was eight years ago. He's still learning what it means to have the rights and privileges of being my permanent child. In the exact same way, we can call ourselves Christ followers. We can be part of his family. We can be considered one of his kids, and there's all kinds of rights and privileges that come with it. And we cannot understand that is how this works. And we will spend the rest of our life trying to understand those promises that, that he's faithful and just, that he'll have compassion and strengthen us and give us rest and supply our needs and not separate from us and never abandon us and not condemn us. We're going to spend the whole rest of our life trying to metabolize that kind of truth. The passage ends in verse 10 when Jesus raises himself up and he saw that no one was there but the woman. And he says to her, hey, woman, like, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I just can't imagine what that would have felt like to look face to face. Jesus tells us he's, he's a face to face kind of savior for us. All the way back in the book of Exodus chapter 33, it says in verse 11 that God was face to face with Moses as one would be with a friend. He's not far away like waving a wand over our sins. He is face to face with us. What would that look like to hear him say, I don't condemn you. You're my kid, I'm crazy about you. We can think on any given day that we are out of the story because of something that we have done or some choice we've made. But listen, we are not, he is not stuck in a particular chapter of our life. He's looking at our whole life at one time. And while we might be feeling paralyzed by some kind of shame, God has good stories still to tell for us and through us. And we are not, leave here knowing for sure, we are not the sum of our worst mistakes. He sees what's to come and he wants to remind you this morning what it is that you are capable of. And I just want to add one PS before we close in prayer, church. If this is true and it's true for us, then we need to represent this to a world that has not seen it from us. We need to be grace givers. We need to be people who understand someone is in one chapter of a whole story. And what does it look like for me to Takim Alam, to get into that story and to do everything that I possibly can to make that crooked road straight? People and situations don't get fixed, they're healed. And God wants to invite us into those kinds of stories to be agents of healing, representatives to people who have not seen that kind of grace and mercy. And the only way we can give that kind of grace and mercy away is because we have first received it ourselves. May that be true of us horizon. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I just can't even believe sometimes we get to talk about these things. We get to sit inside of stories like this and know and trust and believe what is, what is, <laughs> what is good and true and right. Thank you that you have put on display this kind of character from Genesis through the prophets, through your on earth ministry, all the way to the revelation. Thank you that we get to walk in that kind of relationship with you. And we can hold on to those promises and moments when it's tempting to forget them. So Jesus, it is with the authority I have as a co-heir with you to hear together with all of these saints, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I ask that you would release an anointing on us as a whole church. 
that we would experience and know you in a different kind of way. And this would not just be information we add to our heads. This would be behavior that would change in our lives, that we would go and do this kind of faith, not just know this kind of faith. And I pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, amen. Can we thank Beth so much for joining us, for sharing God's word. And thank you all so much for joining us as well. Have a great week, and we hope to see you all next Sunday.